everybody here can easily understand. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? What? Say what again? Say what again? I dare you. I double dare you. What we got here is a failure to communicate. Welcome to the Uncommon Communicator Podcast. Your hosts, James Gable and Brandon Thompson, are here to bring you enlightenment to the topic of communication. We're going to jump right into it, Brandon, talking about Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. It's a book he wrote titled Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as If Your Life Depended on It. So here's just a little excerpt. This is from the back of the book. Like I said, last episode we gave you guys a little bit of a piece, but here's the official like dirt jacket cover reading after a stint uh, policing the rough streets of kansas city missouri chris voss joined the fbi where he is a career as a kidnapping negotiator brought him face to face with bank robbers gang leaders and terrorists never split the difference takes you inside his world of high stakes negotiations revealing the nine key principles that helped voss and his colleagues succeed in mattered the or succeed when it mattered the most when people's lives were at stakes now, what are those nine principles, James? Yeah, and we're going to talk about them now, but we're going to hit each one on an episode. But the nine key principles, active listening, mirroring, silences, and the nighttime DJ voice, mm. tactical empathy, summaries and paraphrasing resulting in, that's right. Oh, yay. No starts the negotiation. No starts the negotiating. Like the term no. The, word, like the word no. It doesn't start with Yes. You mm-hmm. have to start with no, otherwise you're not negotiating. I mean, that's fair. Okay. And he talks about how there's fake yeses, as counterfeit Ooh. yeses, as he calls them. Bending reality by anchoring emotions and navigating deadlines to create urgency. Ooh. Calibrated questions. And then also how to employ those calibrated questions through how questions. Mm-hmm. Effective bargaining. And then the final one really ties everything together. And it's important that these are built upon each other as we learn these skills, the elusive black swan. All right. I like it. So now, James, negotiating is exactly what? This is important. And this is why we're talking about it on the Uncommon Communicator, is negotiation is nothing more than communication with results. Mm. Let me say that again. Negotiation is nothing more than communication with with results. So this is where if you were going to take a test on the Uncommon Communicator podcast, you would write this down, you would highlight this phrase, and you'd be like, I think this is going to be on the test, Teach. Yeah, this. even though we're not testing, mm-hmm. and if we're good podcasters, there might be show notes uh, found. Possibly, maybe. We're not entirely sure. Uh, we, we would never use show notes. This is clearly just because we've got it memorized. We, we wouldn't use show notes, right? No, no show no, notes, no, 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 no. no. We're winging no. it right now. No, yeah, no, yeah. We're winging it. Absolutely. All right. So every chapter in this book starts with a, a story of some kind that Chris Voss ran into in his years as a terrorist terrorist negotiator. In the opening chapter, we learn of a of Chris's experience at a 2006 Harvard Law School winter negotiation course, and a guy named Andy pseudonym. That he named this guy. Pseudonym. Mm-hmm. Word of the day. Yes. And this is also, this stems from last week we read you a little bit of a chapter about how he was negotiating with Harvard guys. And it like, look, this is, the, all these stories are fantastic. Um, but so here's, we decided that we need to pull this book towards you guys and we need to give you exactly what this book is going to be about. 
So he's sitting in a classroom, and they all have to negotiate basically a price. And each person's like told, "Hey, you need to like keep this much back. You can you're supposed to get this much out of the person, right? Yada yada yada." So a good negotiator is going to walk away with not spending too much money, and the other one's going to walk away getting all the money that they need. So he and I went into an empty classroom overlooking one of those English-style squares on Harvard's campus, and we each used the tools we had. Andy would throw an offer and give a rationally airtight explanation for why it was a good one. An inescapable logic trap. And I'd answer with some variation of, how am I supposed to do that? We did this a bunch of times until we got to a final figure. When we left, I was happy. I thought I'd done pretty good for a dumb guy. After we all regrouped in the classroom, Sheila went around the students and asked what price each group had agreed on and then wrote the result on the board. Finally, it was my turn. Chris, how did you do with Andy? She asked. How much did you get? I'll never forget Sheila's expression when I told her what Andy had agreed to pay. Her whole face first went red, as if she couldn't breathe, and then out popped a little strangled gasp, like a baby bird's hungry cry. Finally, she started to laugh. Andy squirmed. You got literally every dime he had, she said. He talked about how like he's a street smarts kind of guy, so James can very much relate, where James works on a construction site, and he's like, I got to do the communications, and in this scenario, I would be more of the book smart, the guy that's studied communications. So you're the Harvard guy? And I, the, I would be the Harvard the guy. guy. Yeah, Is that and the scenario? Something Here. like that, right? Okay. yeah. And, and this, this street smarts kid... Walks up into Harvard, and this this is no joke of a class. This is a Harvard class. Harvard doesn't allow people to just walk in their doors. Right. And he outsmarts the dude, like just does. And I was like, and and so James would like to read the next little ch- or section of Andy's story, as it were. Jumping next, I smiled like a Cheshire cat. Winning was fun. Chris, why don't you tell everybody about your approach? Sheila said. It seems like all you do to these Harvard Law School students is say no and stare at them. And they fall apart. Is it really that easy? I knew what she meant. Well, I wasn't actually saying no. The questions I kept asking sounded like it. They seemed to insinuate that the other side was being dishonest and unfair. And that that was enough to make them falter and negotiate with themselves. Answering my calibrated questions demanded deep emotional strengths and tactical psychological insights that the, tool bo- that the toolbox that they had been given did not contain right i'm just asking questions i said it's a passive aggressive approach i just ask the same three or four open-ended questions over and over and over they get worn out answering and give me everything that i want andy jumped in his seat as if he as if he had been stung by a bee damn he said that's what happened i had no idea marvelous so that's the story that he introduces and first of all, I love the story because, you know, it's always nice when the little guy wins or the underdog wins, dare I say. The dumb guy? The dumb guy. Yeah. Okay. The not as educated guy? His exact word? words are the dumb guy. I believe he even calls himself the dumbest guy in the room. He does. He actually refers to that. And that's probably uh, an important topic to talk about later, too, mm-hmm. is you don't sometimes the smartest guy gets fooled. Yeah. I was like, because you can outclass him. You can outsmart him. We're not. We're smart, but we're not geniuses here. But so. What else are we going to talk? I was like, so this chapter continues on, and it gets into Traversky and Kahneman, which is interesting. And trying to say their names six and a half times is not the easiest task in the world. The key, what he talks about, is cognitive bias, mm-hmm. 
And they've discovered over 150 of them. They're still finding them. And I went down that rabbit hole, did a little research on this, and mm-hmm. it is deep psychological talk, very smart talk. But he covers three of them that he calls out specifically in his negotiations that are important. Now, what is cognitive bias? So everybody walks into situations and they have some sort of some sort of like preconceived notions, right? Um, cognitive bias gets talked a lot about when it comes to like stereotypes and different things like this, right? Uh, and, and stereotypes are not accurate because in all honesty, everybody doesn't. But what cognitive bias is and how it's reinforced, if you get told at some point in time, like let's just say females are bad drivers. If you get told this and then you're driving down the highway and you have like a rear end accident... And it just so happens to be two female drivers. You look over there and you go, oh, yeah, well, that rings true. I've been told it and I literally see proof of it. That then creates a bias in your mind where like next time you get cut off where you're like, oh, must have been a female driver. Right. That's the kind of idea where you just walk in with these preconceived notions and these biases. And you're not exactly it's not like you walked in with this on purpose. This just happens to be life experience that you have. And you just walk in and it's just in there, right? Like it's almost like the nature versus nurture. This isn't the nature. This is the nurture part of like your cognitive being. And that's the that's what was eye-opening for me to realize that's why communication is so hard for everybody. Because not only are we dealing with generations, not only are we dealing with different education levels, but we're talking about a bias that's already in somebody's brain that you can't read or you don't understand, or you don't know yet until you address it. And a a couple of them that he talks about is the framing effect. And that's how people respond differently to the same choice, depending on how it's framed, how I word it. I'm going to say it differently. You're going to respond differently to that situation. When this is actually uh, literally just today at work, actually, I went and I, I got to go clean the trash cans. I was so excited. I really kind of actually needed to get it done. Um, but I walked up there and I knew Sage was not a huge fan of barring. She's also not a huge fan of like cleaning trash cans. So I wanted to make sure that, you know, she understood that like, Hey, look, these are your two options. And I was like, so Sage, you want to go clean the trash cans? And she's like, Oh, absolutely not. And I was like, great. So you're on bar and I'll go clean the trash cans. And she still wasn't very happy about being on bar, but like she didn't have to go clean trash cans. Right. As opposed to where if I would have let off with, Hey Sage, you want a bar? Do you want to do a cleaning task? I bet you Sage would have taken the cleaning task, not necessarily knowing what it was. But, you know, taking the cleaning task, but because I framed it in a certain way, she had the preconceived notion of, nope, no, 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 I'd rather bark. Yeah, and we'll talk about that when we get to labeling as well, too. But if you mislabel something, it creates that framing effect, getting a different response from you. Mm-hmm. Like, would it seem ridiculous for me to ask you to go take the trash out? And in her mind, no, that's not really a ridiculous thought. Or I'm going to have you do the absolute worst job that you're ever going to do here, but it'll be rewarding to you. In your mind, you think, it's not the worst job that I can do. So it's all about framing those questions. The other theory in this cognitive bias is prospect theory. Taking unwarranted risks in the face of uncertain losses. Mm. Hmm. Read that one more time for me. All right. Prospect theory. It's taking unwarranted risks in the face of uncertain losses. All right, James. Break that one down for me. What does that mean to you? All right. So that one is... Uh, where you were supposed to fill in and give me the answers, and I just asked the questions. I do have an answer to this one, though. Hit me um, with it. What is it? All right. So there's this whole theory of taking percentages. Like mm-hmm. somebody, if I could guarantee you 95%, let's say I'll give you $10,000 right now. Okay. Or, or with the risk that you might lose all of it 
or I'll give you $9,500 without any risk at all. Which one would you choose? I mean, I'm going to take the one that's only $500 less with zero risk. Yeah. So maybe that difference is bigger. Maybe I'll guarantee you $4,500 right now. Mm -hmm. Or we have a little risk. I'll ask some questions. I'll give you $10,000. But that one has a little bit risk. Which one are you going to choose? So I again, I always tend to err on the side of caution. So I tend to go with low risk and like a medium reward as opposed to like a high risk and then a high reward. But that's just because I err on the side of caution. Well, and that's uh, most of everybody. Most human beings are going to take that, which is what they're saying, take an unwarranted risk in the face of uncertain losses. Right. So well, that's what most people will do, do is, is they're going to lean towards that. I'll take the easy money, even though I just gave gave up. Money out of my Money, pocket. Yep. Uh-huh. So loss aversion, statistically more likely to act to avert loss in, and then to achieve an equal gain. Which is actually, which even brings back up that prospect theory where we're sitting over here and we're saying that like, we don't want to lose, right? So if, again, we can make double whatever we want, but I still don't want to lose like my $5,000 that I've invested. It's, you know, it's a very similar, like kind of it, that one almost equates to the stock market, right? Where it's like, okay, it's like uh, like penny stocks, right? Every now and then a penny stock can hit it big. It could be the next Facebook or what the hell ever it is, right? But are you going to be willing to invest whatever you need to in order to get that return on the game? Exactly. Right. And it is very true that people, I said, because I'm, I'm looking to take less of a risk. So, statistically more likely to avert loss, just as it is, right? I would, it's, it's almost like a, I play Pokemon Go and I use, like, and I like to have my bag nice and full. So I've got all my items in there. Mm-hmm. There's and a bag. There, there, there's a bag. You have items, Pokeballs, yada, yada, yada. I like my Pokeball count to be at 150 or higher. Back in the day, I didn't even have a bag that could hold 150 items, right? But now I feel like if my Pokemon Bowl count, like, drops below 150, like, it's almost like a loss. And I'll do whatever I can. I was like, I'll just pass on catching it at Pokemon just because I don't want it to be there. So, like I said, just an example of, like, we want to avert loss or loss in our minds or what will be conceived as a loss. Well, and so let's talk for clarity. Let's talk prospect theory because I think I got those a little bit reversed. Prospect theory is taking those unwarranted risks in the face of uncertain losses. So you're going to go and take, you don't know what your losses are. But you're going to take the risk anyway. But you're going to take that risk. Mm -hmm. So that's what that prospect theory is. Whereas the loss aversion, I got those mixed up, is the other one which we talked about. I'm going to take the certain money and be willing to lose Mm -hmm. some money. Okay. There you go. See, we still learn. Yeah, we get I was like, we read the book, but we still learn. That's right. Yeah. That's how you got to teach other people. We're getting there. Yeah. Pokemon. (laughs) There's a real bag. You didn't think that I was going to work Pokemon Go into this podcast. I I would be disappointed. Exactly. There you go. You're welcome. I have lived up to my expectations. Thank you very much. All right. So what is up next? Because we get into the different kind of states of mind that we have. And this is a Kahneman. Again, this this man's name. Kahneman, uh, the... co-defined his research in 2011 thinking fast and thinking slow so what he also believes is that your brain you almost have like two sections of a brain right so we know that there's two different lobes to your brain and the way he describes it is like there's almost two different ways of thought that you have where you have what he calls the animal mind which is fast instinctive and emotional right so when you hear something it's the first reaction and that's just what you spit out and you go for it okay and then you have system two the logical mind slow deliberate and logical right so sometimes we can hear something and our initial reaction is oh my god that's absolutely terrible and then like we can see it down the road and we can be like oh actually wait no this is going to pay off in the end then it's going to be okay it triggers with the logical mind and it moves forward 
Um, and what he, what Chris Voss talks about a lot is that these Harvard students are only trying to activate their like logical mind that they know that, Hey, look, I'm going to spit this number out. And then logically you're supposed to give me this number back. Exactly. And then we're going to come to the conclusion of what it is. All right. Well, bro, I'm here to tell you right now, life don't work like that, son at all. Right? Like I can, I can come at him and I can be like, Hey, look, this is a great deal. It's gonna be five dollars. James, if you absolutely hated me, it didn't matter if I was here to give you a free million dollars. Your first reaction is just to like hang up the phone, right? Like a telemarketer could be offering you a million dollars. But the second you hear, hey, this is so-and-so with such-and-such, you just I just want to hit the click, right? Exactly. It doesn't make it past my instinctive and my emotional animalistic mind. Yep. So what Chris Voss wants to try to do is he wants to take that and he's like, how do I get past like your, like your first barrier door, right? Like this is, this is the first door I got to get here. That way I can talk to you on an even emotional, logical level. So that way you're not having any rash decisions and we can work things out. But the key to that system one, system two is just that, that that animal mind is your primary. Yes. People don't want to admit it. Harvard Law students didn't want to admit it. And they had, as he talked about that toolbox, they had a toolbox of items in their negotiating. These guys are negotiating billion dollar contracts. You know, these guys Mm -hmm. are the experienced negotiators of their time, given a toolbox of negotiating skills. And when he came in, all he did is he played on that animal mind. Right. And by doing that, it's, it stopped them. It froze them. They didn't know what to do with it. So that's the first reaction. You hit them with the animal mind. And then at that point you can work them through that logical mind, which is exactly what happened when you put into play, how am I supposed to do that? Mm -hmm. First, it influenced the emotional mind into believing that that offer wasn't good enough. And it just something that happens. And he talks about the, the amygdala parts of the brain big fancy brain talk here right it's that's part of that animal system where it, it hits your amygdala with which says um hey maybe my offer wasn't good enough you never said no though and that's no. the key to that and then the other one is it rationalized the logical mind into accepting the fact that hey i need to give you a better offer all with that one statement how am i supposed to do that which is great. I said this this chivalrous chapter. I think is, I, I love the first chapter. I think I think it's got probably one of the best stories um, in, in the entire book. In all honesty, I think it might be one of my favorite ones. The the Harvard Law School going in there and doing all that good stuff. Uh, just having somebody walk up in there and change the way like everything is thought of is great. Yeah. Not not to say that the other the rest of the stories aren't as good because he definitely gets into some high tense situations that are all fantastic that deal with the different things. And, and again, these are still basic tools that you can use in your everyday life, right? Like how do you get past someone's animalistic brain to get to the logical aspect of the brain? And what I liked being the, what'd you call me? The the, the dumb guy in the room? No, the, I was no. The, there's a better word. You used a college word for that, right? I'm the... This is uh, the street smarts? The street smarts <laughs> guy, not just the dumb guy. But that is exactly, Chris Voss's exact words are just that. This guy came in with street smarts. So you don't have to be the Harvard educated person, which it does help to come in and have conversations, which go in there and and really be able to have a conversation with somebody without that big gigantic degree hanging on the wall. No. He changed at that moment how the FBI was going to approach negotiations. It changed how Harvard was going to approach negotiations back in this 2006 event. What we want to do at every Uncommon Communicator is tie it back to a UC moment. 
Mm-hmm. Not a university. No, so I was like, so what does UC stand for, it's James? the uncommon communicator. Yes! And that's the message that I want to preach. That's the message that you want to teach. Mm-hmm. And it's what we want to talk about. And it really comes down to that moment of enlightenment. Where, what, what did light bulb go off for you today? And when that light bulb goes off for me, we're going to talk about that. And the key thing that I got out of this intro, which it was a great intro to where we're going to be heading to understand communication, mm-hmm. is just that negotiation is nothing more than communication with results. And that's what we want out of this podcast is communication that gets results. Not communication standing on a soapbox, not communication just venting and feeling good about yourself, but getting results in an interaction with another human being. Mm-hmm. Which is also why we chose to start with Chris Voss because it's a fantastic book about negotiations and how to get results from your communications. Yep. And every day we negotiate one way or the other. But the other key is, and we're going to find these in the other chapters, is it, it is about listening. It's about other aspects that really help person-to-person communications. Mm-hmm. What are we doing next? Next up is mirroring. Oh, my goodness. This is mirroring. This is a fun one. This is actually, so far, this has been my favorite chapter. Your so, favorite chapter? My favorite chapter. Because um, I, I feel like I can relate to mirroring. Working in, in uh, the service industry or working in like retail Again, I've only got a short period of time to interact with everybody here, so I need to make each of these interactions very good. And like, how do I, how do I do this? How do I approach it? And it changes every time. And we'll get into it when mirroring comes around. But mirroring so far has been the most relatable chapter for me. All right. Well, that's the next one, and we will see you guys next time. See you. Bye.